The pre-print manuscripts of Tanya shed light on what the Alter Rebbe added to this seminal text at a later stage. Curiously, some of the most important updates and changes involve Bein Adam Lachaveiro interpersonal relationships. Why is that? What does it teach us about the times then? And what does that teach us about our lives today? Let's go back in time and remind ourselves of the scene of how things looked in Eastern Europe in the late 18th century. Because it's probably well known that there was a huge fight, dispute, divide in the Jewish community at the time. I'm talking about the 1770s, the 1780s, culminating in the 1790s, a huge battle between the new movement of Hasidim and those who wanted to remain with what was old, who were famously called misnagdim or opponents. And the two were at odds with each other. And so much has been written about this period in time. Ultimately, one of the most famous Hasidic leaders who was living then, the Alta Rebbe, the first Rebbe of Chabad, well, someone wrote into the government, wrote to the Tsar, that he is leading a rebellion and that he has began a new sect that has no permission, Jews needed explicit permission to be able to live in Russia. Well, they're a new religion that has no rights to actually exist in Russia. And as a result, Reb Shneir Zaman of Liadi was arrested and he was incarcerated for the month of Cheshven and some of the month of Kislev in uh, the year 1796, the end of the year, 17, excuse me, 1797. And uh, he is freed on Yutes Kislev. On Yutes Kislev, they drop all charges. They say that he's good to go. Now, in Chabad circles, there's a story we tell about what happened immediately thereafter. He's free to go. He's in the city of St. Petersburg. There aren't many Jews who are in St. Petersburg because it was outside the pale of settlements. Jews didn't have the right to live there. You needed a special permit to live in St. Petersburg. Well, if Alter Rebbe is free, where is he going to go? Well, he had a few Hasidim that lived there, one of whom was named was Reb Mordechai Lepler. So he is going to Mordechai Lepler's house. And he tells his people, he tells the police, please take me to Mordechai Lepler's house. Well, they take him to Mordechai Lepler's house, but it was a little more confusing. You see, it was a two-story home. And at the top floor was Mordechai Lepler. On the lower floor, there was someone who was actually an opponent, a fierce opponent of Hasidim, who lived on the ground floor. Well, they led the Alter Rebbe into this building, and they brought him into that first floor, and they brought him into that, that home. And it's only after a few minutes did the Alter Rebbe realize, I'm not where I need to be. I am in the home of an opponent, rather in the home of a supporter. Well, the opponent was actually really happy to have this opportunity. He was shocked that the Alter Rebbe was freed from prison. He had hoped that the Alter Rebbe would be sent to Siberia and he would never be heard of again. And here he is, he's standing right there in front of him. So the first thing he does, he says, can I pour for you some tea? Okay, and he does, and he pours for him some tea. But immediately after he finishes pouring him the tea, he starts laying it all out. And he starts yelling at him. And all of the accusations and all of the problems that the opponents had against Hasidim, all of those were expressed 
during those moments. And from talking, he started raising his voice until it reached the pitch where he's yelling at the Alter Rebbe. And the Alter Rebbe is just sitting there listening to this torment. Finally, the people upstairs who are waiting for the Alter Rebbe because they had received word that he is going to be returning, he hasn't come back. Well, let's go find out from downstairs. Uh, maybe he knows what's going on because he's on the other side. Maybe he has some information. They walk into the downstairs home. And to their shock and chagrin, what do they find? They find their Rebbe, their beloved Rebbe, sitting there as he's being victimized and being yelled at and being taunted by this opponent. And his head is on the table. He's just taking it all in, listening, not responding to anything. They were enraged. They were really, really upset. And I want you to put yourself in those shoes for someone you really love who was just incarcerated, just got out of prison, and is being subjected to that type of verbal abuse, what would you think? What would you feel? What would you do? Well, uh, one of them uh, lifted his hand and decided that he had to strike this uh, opponent. Immediately, the Alter Rebbe said, put that hand down. That is not what we are going to do. <laughs> okay, Rebbe, then let's go. Before I go, he has hosted me, uh, I am going to drink the tea that he offered for me. And he made a blessing and drank the tea, said thank you very much, and he, together with his supporters, exited and went upstairs. That is the story that Hasidim have been telling for many decades that happened at the time. And the Rebbe once repeated this by a Fabrengen. In the year Tavshan Lamed Ches at the Yutas Kislev Fabrengen, the Rebbe said, it's a really interesting story, but it's highly problematic if you think about it. Why is that? Well, because in the Chabad tradition, this whole story of where people reported uh, to that the Alter Rebbe accused him, that they accused him of being against the government, all of this wasn't just politics, it wasn't just mudslinging, it was actually something physical that reflected a spiritual reality. What was the spiritual reality it reflected? Well, the Alter Rebbe was teaching the deepest aspects of the Torah and Hasidus to everyone. Some of these things, some of these concepts and ideas were never taught to the masses. It was understood that this is only for the select few people who are really holy and really special, who do a lifelong uh, a journey of preparing for studying esoteric Kabbalah. They can do this, but not just any person. And so therefore, there was a spiritual accusation against the Alter Rebbe, which reflected itself in the fact that he was incarcerated. Which means what? That when he was released, that also reflected something spiritual. That... Heaven has said it is okay. Proceed, go ahead. Yes, it is a good idea to teach all of the Torah, including the secrets of the Torah, to everybody. Well, if that's the case, then think about it. If heaven decreed that he's good to go, how does he end up in the opponent's home? What is the purpose in that? The entire story of the incarceration only reflected the fact that there was a heavenly accusation against him. That heavenly accusation was over, so why does he end up in this opponent's home? How much more so if you consider the fact that in the Chabad tradition we have multiple stories of the fact that everything that happened to the Alter Rebbe during this period of time, during this period of arrest, was with his consent and with his permission. So for example, there is a story of him traveling on the wagon this Friday afternoon. He wants to stop for Shabbos. They don't want to stop for Shabbos. The Alter Rebbe says, we better stop for Shabbos. They say, we're not stopping for Shabbos. And then the, the, the wagon starts to uh, break. Uh, first the wheel breaks, then another wheel breaks, then one of the animals is incapacitated and is not able to schlep the wagon. And indeed, they end up staying at that location for the duration of Shabbos. And Hasidim always said, you see, 
Everything that happened during this period of time happened with his consent. Well, if that's true for the journey north going up to St. Petersburg, it definitely should be true as well for what happened when he was released. In other words, the Alta Rebbe consented to being in the home of the opponent, being verbally taunted. Why? What, why would he have, it's, there was no mistake here. Everything was methodical. Everything had a purpose. What was the purpose in this? These were the questions that the Rebbe asked about this story of the Alta Rebbe being in the opponent's home at the Fabrengen of Yutes Kislev, Tafshin Lamed Ches. We will return to that later on. Now let's talk about the Alta Rebbe's magnum opus. The magnum opus of the Alta Rebbe's work is the Tanya. What is the Tanya? The Tanya, we can... The Tanya is much less a book and more a program. A program for what? The Torah says, It is really within reach to serve God verbally, to serve God with action, and to serve God with the heart, which means to develop real positive emotions and love for God. Well, many of us, when we hear that, we say, yeah, right, not really true. It's really difficult. Action is difficult. How much more so to generate feelings in the heart that I could actually have a warm uh, uh, love for God? Very difficult. And so the Tanya comes to say how indeed it is. When the Alter Rebbe wrote the Tanya, he said, this is going to answer all of the questions that I'm being asked for one-on-one -on -one meetings. I don't have time to meet everybody. Let me just take it and turn it into an essay and turn it into a book and let me put it out there and this will help solve the problem. Well, uh, initially, the Alter Rebbe did not agree for this to be printed. So how did it get out there? It got out by manuscript, which meant you went to your friend, you got, you had a handwritten, he had a handwritten copy, you copied it word for word. And that is how the first few years of the Tanya disseminated was in manuscript only. Okay. Eventually, in the year 1796, in the summer of 1796, the Alta Rebbe decides it's time to print this book. And so he sends it to print, and it is ready at the end of the year 1796 in December on the 20th of Kislev, which is already the year Tov Kuf Nun, Zion, 1796. The book is finally printed, and since then it can be studied as a printed, uh, it can be studied as a printed work. Now, in libraries around the world, there are copies of the pre-print manuscripts. In 1977, in Cheshven of 1977, from Warsaw, there was a manuscript copy pre-print of this Tanya that was there. It belonged to Chabad. During the mess up of World War II, it was, uh, it was left behind in Warsaw, and it was preserved there. And the Polish government agreed to return this manuscript, along with other documents, to return it to the Chabad community in, 19, uh, in 1977. And the Rebbe took a look at this manuscript, and he said, and he noticed that this was pre-print, and there are some differences in this manuscript compared to the actual printing of the Tanya. And so the Rebbe announced that summer, in the summer of 1978, that we are going to produce for the first of its kind, a critical edition of a Hasidic work. Critical edition, namely, not that we're going to be critical of it, but in the academic sense of we are going to have the text, the, prime, the, the alter, alter, alternate readings of this manuscript compared to the actual uh, text of the Tanya that we have, and discuss why do we have these alternate meetings. And it wasn't just this copy that came from Warsaw in 19. 
77, but there were another few copies of manuscripts that were located in the library in New York, one in the British Museum. Altogether, we were dealing here with seven manuscripts, seven different manuscripts from the early, from sometime in the 1790s before the print of the Tanya, each one with their own uh, uh, minor differences, uh, and, and, and this is the work that the Rebbe announced he wants to print. He actually announced, anyone who feels that they're going to be good at critical scholarship, please come forward so we can, uh, so we can put uh, this out. Why is it important? Because when we look at the differences, we will be able to learn a lot. Okay? You could say, what do you need the earlier drafts? I don't keep the earlier drafts of my work. I just care about the final work. Well, it's different with a great sage, with the Alta Rebbe. If you could compare what he had initially and then what he decided to change, you could learn a lot. And we're going to see an example of that right now. Ultimately, it was finally published. This critical edition was finally published in Tufshin Membez a few days before Yutes Kislev. In 1981, this book was published. There's an entire history about the last few weeks of the publishing of this book, which is fascinating. Uh, I was thinking of talking about it, but there isn't enough time, and so it's not uh, central to our theme today, and so we'll save that for another time. What I want to discuss with you today is some of the most prominent differences, not the minor ones, some of the most prominent differences between the earlier versions of the Tanya as seen in the manuscripts and the final printing of the Tanya. The most prominent difference is that chapter 32, chapter 32 of Tanya is not there in the early version. What is chapter two? Chap chapter 32 is lave in Hebrew, the heart. What does the lave of Tanya talk about? It's about the mitzvah of Avas Yisrael. It's about loving of a fellow Jew. And in a nutshell, what the Alter Rebbe was saying is that in prior chapters, he was telling us how we should live with a soul-focused life. And if we live a soul-focused life, he now says in chapter 32, that is an easy way to come to loving a fellow Jew. Why is that? What divides us? Our bodies. What unites us? Our soul. So if you're living a soul-focused life, that means you're going to have a much easier time interrelating positively with fellow Jews. That entire chapter is not there in the earlier versions. Is it possible for a, a body, an organism, to live without the heart? No. No, it is not possible for the body to live without the heart. And yet, here we have a body, the Tanya, without the heart. The heart was not there. The lave was not there in the earlier version. Isn't that odd? Isn't it odd that the heart wasn't there? But that's not the only chapter that's missing. The second prominent difference I want to talk with you, I want to talk about today, is the 30th chapter of Tanya. The 30th chapter of Tanya discusses the following. When a person feels that they need to become a little more humble, they need to become a little more modest, they need to become a little more unpretentious, a little more gentle. This is something that a person needs to do from time to time. So in earlier chapters, he gives various ways of doing it. And then in chapter 30, which is the one that's missing, he tells us, this is how you can do it. Look at the other people around you and notice that they are actually maybe in a better spiritual standing than you. And that's because even if at the end of the day they're doing transgressions and you're not, but they have to endure a tremendous battle because of their circumstances, because of their genes or whatever it is. They're having a much more difficult time. It's a much more difficult battle. You are actually not battling to the degree that they are. And in fact, they don't know better. But you do know better. And because of that, 
it, it's really on you. And, and therefore, and this is a process to really think about the fact that other people who, it looks like they're doing wrong, and in fact you could turn it on yourself to say, you know what, they don't really know better, their battles are much greater than mine, and by thinking through this whole process, the result will be that you'll be more spiritually attuned, you'll be a little more spiritually gentle, which is what a person needs from time to time. That entire chapter is not there in the earlier version of the time. Hold that in your mind. Chapter 32 is not there. Chapter 30 is not there. Let's go to the third most notable difference. Chapter 12 of Tanya. Chapter 12 of Tanya talks about a principle called Moach Shalit Al-Halev, self-control. You can use your mind to harness your emotions. You could be in control of your life. And in the beginning of this chapter, he talks about it in a spiritual sense. He talks about it in the sense of uh, having improper thoughts, lewd thoughts, or thoughts about idolatry or heresy or things like that that come into a person's mind. You, although you may feel a certain way, you can still exert control over your life and over your emotions, and you can, all in that sense. Okay? In the earlier versions of Tanya, in the manuscript versions, it ends there. And then we open our Tanya today, and we have, Likewise, when it comes to matters, interpersonal relationships between people, when a person has a machshevesina, which is a thought of hate, or kina, jealousy, kas, anger, kapeda, annoyance, here too the principle of moach shalit is true. You have the ability to say, I will not be angry, I will not take revenge, I will not bear a grudge, because that's how you feel emotionally. But guess what? The brain can remain in control and you do not have to be a victim in that way to your emotions. You can control your emotions. Then he goes on to say, and in fact, not only won't you, don't you have to be angry, you could actually respond to that person with kindness, with gentleness, with a hug, with giving, with generosity. And where do we see that in the Torah, he says? The story that we've been reading over the last few weeks about Yosef and his brothers. Look what they did to him. They threw him in a pit and left him there to die. They sold him into slavery. But you know what? When he met them, he was kind to them, he was gracious to them, he provided for them, and never once did he take revenge of them. And he said, clearly, I'm not doing this because I know this was all God's plan and it all worked out for the good. This is the role model that Alter Rebbe says. We can use that as well when we are going through a dispute with another person, all of that can be true for us. You know, and the people, when they worked on this critical edition of the Tanya, they said, we don't understand. We don't understand. Why indeed did the Alter Rebbe have to add the principle of Moach Shalit, that the mind can remain in control? Why did he need to add that for interpersonal relationships? Obviously, the rule is true for everything. It's, cruel, it's true for Shabbos. It's true for Kashras. It's true for every single mitzvah, including Ben Adon Lachavere. And so if you look at this critical edition of the Tanya, you'll see that in a footnote they say, the earlier versions only speak about man and God does not speak about interpersonal relationships, and, we, and that's all it discusses, the concept of Moach Shalat Al-Alev, and we do not understand why the Alter Rebbe felt the need to add this into the end of chapter 12. So, in summary, there are three major sections of Tanya that were not there in the early version. Chapter 32, all about Avas Yisrael, loving a fellow Jew. Chapter 30, all about looking at that other person and in fact elevating them, judging them favorably to reach a place where you, you're, where you become more humble. And the end of chapter 12, talking about the principle of Moach Shalit Al-Halev, that you can use your mind to control your emotion as applied to interpersonal relationships was not there in the earlier version and is here. 
I hope you can tell by this point the common denominator between all three of these emissions. They are all interpersonal relationships. They are all about dealing with another human being. And that's fascinating. And that asks us to pause. And that asks us to say, what is going on over here? What happened that in an earlier version of Tanya, we didn't have a focus on interpersonal at all in these three areas. And then in the later edition, where he actually goes and prints this work, in three separate occasions and places, he's writing about interpersonal relationships with other people. That's definitely something that is necessary for us to study and examine. Now, we have a volume of the Alter Rebbe's letters. Letters that he wrote. He wrote many, many hundreds of letters. We don't have all of them. We have a select few of the letters that he wrote. Um, the latest edition of this was printed about 10 years ago. It is a very wonderful edition of the Alter Rebbe's letters, and I was reading through it a number of years ago. And there are about 10 or 15, that, about 10 I think, that have a specific theme to them. The theme is Hasidim writing to the Alter Rebbe. We are being tormented. We are being attacked. They are making life a living hell for us as the Hasidim. They're pursuing us. We need to do something. How should we respond to them? Can we fight back? Can we issue an excommunication against them? Can we use this means or that means? There are 10 letters of the Alter Rebbe. And in the 10 letters, the Alter Rebbe guides the Hasidim for how to deal with this tumultuous situation and very, very difficult situation that they were living through in the 1790s. And I want to read to you some highlights of these letters. Because as I start reading these lines, I want you to hear in your brain saying, oh, that sounds like chapter 32. I want you to say, oh, that sounds like chapter 30. And I want you to say, oh, that sounds like the end of chapter 12. So let's begin. Here's a quote from one of the letters. Believe with absolute faithfulness in the precept of our sages. Be humble of spirit before every person. So in other words, this again written in this context to people who are battling it. In, you want to know how to deal with the people who are tormenting you? Be humble in front of every person. That line shouts, chapter 30. <coughs> chapter 30. Continue. The letter continues. All people of Israel are as one, associated together, just as one person is composed of many limbs. That line is chapter 32. Next, none of you should consider in your hearts what is evil to another. Such consideration should never rise in the heart, and if it does, push it away like an idolatrous thought. That's chapter 12. That's chapter 12, where he beginning was talking about an idolatrous thought, and he said you could push it away, and now he says, same thing applies to thinking about another person. This letter has all three. I want to really make the case I need to bring a few witnesses. So let me call another witness uh, to the stand. Another quote from a letter. Do not become haughty-minded in relation to your brethren. Do not speak defiantly against them or hiss at them. Heaven forfend. Rather, they are to subdue you, are to subdue your spirit and heart before everyone. That is chapter 30. And he continues, a soft, he quotes a verse from Proverbs, a soft answer turns away anger. In other words, though they're exuding anger to you, you respond with a soft answer. That's chapter 12. Another example. There was a situation in where the Alta Rebbe got word that there were a few Hasidim who gathered together one evening. And again, when you're persecuted, it's not easy. So we're not going to judge them. But what they, did do at the, at what they did do at the time is they started mocking the Torah scholars. The Torah scholars who were their opponents, they started mocking them. What they said, we don't know. But the Alter Rebbe heard about this, and he wrote them a reprimand. 
And in this reprimand, it says, you have chosen a crooked path. This is the opposite of what we were taught by our teachers, meaning the Baal Shem Tov and the other rabbis, before the Alter Rebbe did not teach us to respond in this way. The very first thing that we need to know is that we need to be the students of Abraham, our forefather, who had a gentle spirit, a humble spirit, a modest spirit. Bifnei kol adam mamish in front of everyone, including them. Now, when you go and say, oh, he thinks he's a Torah scholar, but really he is not because of this and that. Is that a humble spirit? Is that a modest spirit? No, to the contrary. This letter is screaming, Perak Lamid of Tanya. It is yelling at you that I am the 30th chapter of Tanya. Another uh, letter that is printed. This one, he, Alter Rebbe says, I want to awaken in all of you a love for each of our fellow Jews, even if they are not from our crew, meaning even if they're not part of the Hasidim. And even though sometimes they spoke negatively about us, and in fact, they, they um, disparaged the great holy tzaddikim like the Baal Shem Tev, forgive it. Why? It's all inadvertent. It is all inadvertent. Why? Because they heard from the leaders and they thought it's okay. So therefore they thought it's okay. They're doing it. That is chapter 30 of Tanya together with 32 of Tanya. And then he goes on to say, I am asking you that you should make yourself used to the idea, get used to loving each one of our brethren, even if they're not part of the Hasidic movement, and judge them favorably because we are literal brothers. Banim, Atama, Hashem, Aleikeichem, you are the children of God. And whether we're doing right and whether we're doing wrong, we are still God's children. That's chapter 32. And therefore, even for the people who are tormenting you, they're still God's children. They still deserve your love. We'll do one last one. There's so much more if you go through these letters, but there's one last one. There was the Hasidim in Vilna at a certain point said, we've had it, we cannot take this anymore. We need to engage in some sort of retribution because we cannot just lie down here and be victims again and again and again. And the Alter Rebbe responded and said, absolutely not. Just like then in the 1770s, so too today in the 1790s, we need to be quiet. We need to endure. We need to accept this suffering because it is like the pains of birth. Just like the pains of birth lead to the glorious child, the special child is worth it. So too, the pain that we're having right now, don't worry about it. It's going to lead to something really, really special. But that line where he's telling them to endure and to not respond, that is the end of chapter 12 of Tanya. And then again, he goes on to say that at the end of the day, testimony was said that Hasidim are violating different laws, which was not true, but testimony was said, and rabbis heard that. And so therefore, you need to judge those rabbis favorably. It's not their fault. What were they supposed to do? They heard the testimony, judge them favorably. Chapter 30 of Tanya. We can go on and on and on, but I think you understand the point. So what happened here? What seems to have happened here, perhaps we can suggest, the Alter Rebbe issues the first version of Tanya. And he lays out his principles there. And everything is there. And I asked before, how can you have a book without the heart? The answer is, you actually have the heart in all of the Tanya. Why is that? Because the Tanya is speaking about making the soul primary. Chapter 32 of Tanya did not introduce one new idea. He's just saying, based on everything that I was telling you, how making your life, your soul primary, now you're going to be able to successfully execute Avas Yisrael. He didn't teach anything new. He just said, based on what I said till now, making the soul primary, you're going to be able to do this mitzvah. So there's nothing missing in Tanya. It's all there. It's all there. And that's how the Alter Rebbe produces the book. He teaches you about Moach Shalat Alev. But he doesn't think he needs to tease it out for every single scenario and every single case. I'll give you the principle. Figure it out on your own. 
Okay, well, then the Alter Rebbe observed the reality. And it seems to me that the Alter Rebbe saw Hasidim, who excelled in prayer, who excelled in controlling their mind when it came to thoughts that were improper. But at the same time, it was so challenging for them to, to have a, a, a relationship with another person that was something that was very, very difficult. And although it happened in the realm of their service, their relationship with God was rising, 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 correspondingly, we did not have a corresponding benefit between one person and another person. And so the Alta Rebbe realizes it's not automatic. There is no automatic transfer. We are, we are good at dealing with how we, uh, various issues in life, with us and God, it does not necessarily translate to how we're going to interrelate to another person. It's a different nisoyin. It's a different test. Success in one does not necessarily mean the second one. And so therefore the Altar says, you know what? I am going to have to take that extra time and add this material into Tanya showing people how Ma'ach Shalat Alalev is not only to overcome a heretical thought and a lewd thought, but also a thought of hate against another human being. And I'm going to have to show that there's different ways of making yourself feel modest. But one of those ways, and that he did in chapter 29, but now I'm going to tell you a new way how to feel modest, and that is to judge the other person favorably and to be a little harsher on yourself. And I'm going to have to tease out an entire new chapter of Tanya that's all going to be about the importance of loving a fellow Jew, although it's the same principle of soul primary and body secondary, but at the end of the day, I need to tease it out. I need to explain how it works because I see the struggle. And so therefore, if we're looking for a lesson, and we should be looking for a lesson, number one, it is worth noting the concept, these three concepts. We can all, I can be, and I'm sure all of us can be better at using our mind to be better, similar to Joseph, to rein in our emotions and to, tamp and to calm down on that, those feelings of jealousy and resentment that we sometimes have. And I can definitely do a better job at judging other people favorably and using harsh judgment to judge myself to spur me to greater growth and to feel somewhat modest. And definitely I could be better at the theme of chapter 32 in Tanya in promoting Avas Yisrael. However, I'd like to suggest that from this presentation, there is another hoira, another lesson that emerges. And the Rebbe really did speak about this in the Sicha of Baaloischa, Tovshin Nun Aleph. And that is, the Rebbe discussed the following. We now know, because of these earlier versions, that Tanya could have, he didn't say it about all three, he only said it about chapter 32, but I'm expanding it to all three. We now know Tanya could have survived without this material. In fact, it was used without that material. Tanya could have been a magnum opus. It could have been a successful book. And it was a successful book without all of that information. It shows you it didn't need to be there. And yet he put it there. He added it in later. What does that tell you? That tells you that even if it's not necessarily necessary, stick it in. Avas Yisrael should be stuck in in every single place. In every single place, we should find ways to talk about this value and to sneak it in in one way or another. The Alta Rebbe did the same. It could have, the Tanya could have been without and was without, and yet he did it. We should follow in the same way. You know, a part of me says, it is very common to do a Dvar Torah on Shabbos, whether it's in the shul, where the rabbi would get up and speak or perhaps around the Shabbos table where someone would say a Dvar Torah. And very often it's a question and it's an answer and there is a lesson. How great would it be if taking these words of the Rebbe to heart, if we made an effort to say, you know what? How about we try to focus that at least once a month, the Dvar Torah that will be sheared 
will have a focus on how we relate to other people. How beautiful would that be? Because ultimately, if we don't talk about these things, if we don't stress these things, the Alta Rebbe learned then, and we now know today as well, it becomes that much more difficult to actually live successfully in these areas. How about we find ways to stress Avas Yisrael? And here I want to say, it's not about talking about the importance. You do nothing, I don't say nothing, but we don't do a lot. If I get up and I say, Avas Yisrael is the most important thing, na, 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 na. we do very little when we just promote the value of Avas Yisrael. We do a lot when we say, okay, what does that mean? What is difficult about that? Why is it challenging? And how can we overcome those challenges? Or what are some of the reasons why it's not working? And what are some things we could actually do to change that? How can I, and that the Alter Rebbe is doing that by talking about the principle of Moach Shalit Alalev. That's not just extolling the virtue of loving a fellow Jew. That's actually getting into the nitty gritty and talking about the nuts and bolts of how to get this done. So I don't like the Dvar Torah that just says, here we see it's so special, it's equal to the whole Torah. Now we can all go home. That's nice. That's not what we mean. What we mean is something more thorough, something more practical, something more relevant, something more tailored toward real life. How much more so this year, which is the year of Hakel. This year is the year of Hakel. Hakel, during biblical times, the Jews would gather in the month of Tishrei of this year where they would all hear Torah from the king. And one of the major themes of this event was Jewish unity. How important it is that we think about that this specific year. Now, I went a long while without saying a story, and I feel like I have a whole bunch in me that I need to give you, so now is going to be the time. And the reason for that is because Hasidim, there were some Hasidim who really excelled in their Avas Yisrael in very real ways. And I'm not going to tell you a story of the person whose life was in danger, and so someone put everything aside in order to save that other person. Those are very important, but I want something that's a little more subtle, more connected to real life. So... I'm going to choose to repeat a few stories that I heard in the name of one of the great Hasidim of the previous generation, Rev uh, Mendel Futterfass. And these stories, I believe all of, almost all of them, I heard from Rabbi Shmuel Lu, who is the Shliach of the Rebbe in London. Rev Mendel Futterfass said as follows, number one, story number one. I work very hard, and often I'm tired, and I fall asleep before I manage to say the Krishma, the, the reading of Shema that is appropriate to say on one's bed. I fall asleep before I manage to say the Kriyat Shema. However, I never fell asleep before I said the paragraph that precedes that, Hareini that I forgive any person who upset me. This was something that was really important for him on a very basic level. There are people who hurt us in life. It happens. It's a real thing. And... For him, it was really important never to go to sleep. Even if he was going to fall asleep before saying, you should love God. But he would not let himself fall asleep before he said, I forgive. Number two. He once said that in the Gulag, when he was arrested by the Russians for helping Jews flee the prison that was the Soviet Union, he was arrested. He felt really bad that he did not have the opportunity, he was not with fellow Jews, he did not have the opportunity to fulfill the mitzvah of Avas Yisrael. Think about that. Someone who is bothered by the fact that he does not have the ability to fulfill the mitzvah of Avas Yisrael. So what did he do? He said every day he took a few minutes to think about a childhood friend and to contemplate their goodness, the things that he liked about them, their strengths and their virtues. What a beautiful idea. Imagine we did that. Imagine we took some time to think about or speak about the strengths and virtues in others. Now, another story I'd like to share. 
that I think is quite telling, quite meaningful. For the last year of his life, he lived in London. And uh, there are many people who went by to visit with him. So one Shabbos, there was a Fabrengen in Shul, and someone said a story, I don't know what the story was. And uh, there were uh, Shmuel Lu, Rabbi Shmuel Lu, heard the story, said, hey, that's, you know, Remendel would really like to hear that story. I'm going to, on the way home, pass by the house where he's staying, and I will tell him the story. And he did that. Remendel, good Shabbos. Where are you coming from? From Shul. What did you hear? Oh, I heard this fabulous story. I need to tell you. And he told him the story. Remendel was very appreciative of the story, and they parted. Reb Shmuel Lu went home. A few minutes later, there was a knock on the door, and Professor Tali Lowenthal showed up. Remendel, I heard a wonderful story in Shul just now. You need to hear this story. Remendel said, what is the story? And he told him the story, the exact same story. Remendel listened to every single word, didn't say anything. Tali Lowenthal leaves, and in walks in Rabbi Ephraim Patash. I know it sounds like some TV show where the door is opening and closing. <laughs> Ephraim Patash walks in. Remendel, I just heard a wonderful story. I need to tell you this story. The exact same story, the exact same thing. Remendel listens to everything. So if I heard the name correctly, he said there was a man by the name of Spritzer or someone, something like that, who was his Remendel's caretaker and witnessed this whole thing. He turns to Remendel and he says, really? The same story three times? How do you do that? Why? Remendel said, I didn't hear. I, <laughs> sorry about that. <laughs> Remendel said, I didn't hear one story. I heard three stories. Now, it's important to realize they all said the story the same way. It's not that they said it differently. But what Remendel was doing was listening to each person, how they said it, what was their tone, where were they smiling, what resonated with each one of them, because you could learn something from that too. Now, the overarching theme of this story is sensitivity to another person. How often by a Fabrengen, or if you're, when you're sitting at a Fabrengen, someone starts saying a story, oh yeah, I know that one already, or whatever. That is a very rude thing to do. And you actually have the ability to do a mitzvah. Just listen to the guy say the story. Why do you need to intervene? Now, the truth is, the truth is that I have a friend. I'm the co-director of curriculum at JLI. Jewish Learning Institute. So the co-pilot is a man by the name of Rabbi Silverberg, and he told me the following. He was in Israel in the summer of 1994, and Shavu there in Kfar Chabad, he and his brother, Elianus and Silverberg, and they're like, let's go to Remendel's house for a Fabrengen. So they come to Remendel's house for a Fabrengen, and there's Remendel there together with Shlemke Madanshik. They're sitting around the table. And Remendel would very often say, no, what do you have to say? Rather than just grabbing the mic uh, for himself, he would often ask people around him to share words of wisdom and inspiration. So Elianus and Silverberg said, oh, I actually heard a story. I'd like to tell you the story. The story went somehow like this. That once, Remendel Fotefas had a teacher, an Amashpia, whose name was Reb Zama Moshe Hayitzchaki and a, a role model for Reb Mendel, and he cared very much about him, and that's why Silverberg thought it would be a great idea to say a story about Reb Mendel's mentor. He said that one time the, the sixth Rebbe, the Friedrich Rebbe, was uh, leading Eifa Brengen, and he called over Reb Zalman Moshe to come up to tell him something, and Zalman Moshe goes up to the Friedrich Rebbe, and the Friedrich Rebbe, he leans over, the Friedrich Rebbe tells him something in his ear, and he goes back to his place. The people around Zalman Moshe say, no, what did the Rebbe tell you? What did the Rebbe What did the Rebbe tell you? She says, I don't know. What do you mean you don't know? You just were up there and you heard him. He told you something in your ear. I have no clue what he said. How do you not know what he said? The whole time, 
that he was talking to me, I thought one thing. When will the Rebbe remove his holy eyes from my piggish face? This is what Zalman Moshe said. Now, maybe you're comfortable with that sentiment, maybe you're not, it's irrelevant, because it's not our main theme of the story, but this is what he said, why he did not hear what was said. Silverberg tells this to Remendel Fotovas, and Remendel Fotovas says, Thank you very much. That is a great story. I really appreciate it. And they started singing a nigan. A few minutes later, Shlemke Madanchik says, Remendel, one second. That Fabrengen, you were there when that happened. So Remendel said, yeah. So you know what happened. You were present. You were, said, yeah. He didn't say the story exactly right. I said it now to you right. But the way Silverberg said it then was a little different with one of the... Yeah, that's right. He didn't say the story properly. And it then dawned upon all the people sitting around the table, they hear you have this young whippersnapper telling a story to the person who was there, and he said it wrong, and Remendel didn't say anything, didn't want to correct him, because it wasn't necessary. Why do that? That comes from extreme sensitivity. Now, some people have that gift. They just have it naturally, and I'm not one to say whether Remendel was born with these traits or it was something that he learned. It doesn't matter. What matters is that this is something we need to get better at. We're able to see the Tanya pleading with us, pleading with us. Don't only worry about spiritual growth. I need all of that to also translate in how we deal with other human beings. And so, together with the Dvar Torah that we can say, or the sermon that we can say, that once in a while unpacks a message for Beinad al Lachaveri, which I think we could do much more of, a story, too, from Hasidim of how they did that. Many stories of them davening for 14 hours. Great, say those stories. But how about the stories that show the extreme sensitivity, love, and care? When we say those stories, we promote the value, we cultivate it, and over time you'll see there will be changes in a family, in a home, in a community when we're able to talk in these ways. Let's come back now to that thing that's lingering in your minds. The Alta Rebbe sitting in Petersburg in the home of an opponent who is yelling at him. And the Hasidim came and they were so upset. Remember I said before, no accidents here. Everything has to be with a purpose. If the Alta Rebbe did not want to be there, he wouldn't have been there. So what was the purpose here? The Rebbe said, the purpose was for the Alta Rebbe to show a living example for all those letters that I read before. He's telling them, he's living in the ivory tower. He's safe. No one's really bothering him until he was arrested. He's writing out letters to the Hasidim on how to deal with their hardships. Easy for you to say. How about for you to do? Well, the God orchestrated and the Alta Rebbe consented that the Alta Rebbe was going to have to endure that which, was he was, that which was he was preaching. He was going to put his own money where his pen was. And therefore, and therefore, and, and, and go further here. You're dealing here with a person, this opponent, who's a little bit of a lowlife, if I may say. And that's because I may disagree with you a lot. If you just got out of prison, you haven't taken a shower in six weeks, you haven't been fed a normal meal, I'm not going to torment you. I'll wait till tomorrow. Then and there, it really shows how low of a person he was. And nonetheless, what did the Alta Rebbe insist? Not only that he wouldn't be attacked, the Alter Rebbe insists to be gracious to him and accept his offer of drinking tea as a gentleman in his home. Because even someone who is behaving wrongly still deserves some sort of level of forgiveness, of being judged favorably, and of respect and even love. Loved. 
Now, in our generation, the Rebbe spoke about this value so often. And I want to share a few highlights about this as it pertains to our subject today. There's so much we can do here, but I'm going to select two or three examples, and we'll wrap it up then. We're all familiar with Kairach. Kairach in the Torah is a villain. He has the audacity to rebel against God, to rebel against Moses, to rebel against Aaron. And if you think about it, the Parsha is named for Kairach. And the Rebbe and the Fabrengen of Kairach Tav Shemem says, how do you name a Parsha for a wicked person? We want, we, we provide names for Tzadikim. Why for a wicked person are we going to take an entire Parsha and name it for him? What's the answer? The answer is as follows. Koirach, the man, is a good person, fully deserving of having his name on a parsha just like any other kosher Jew. Koirach, the man, is great. You need to divide between Koirach, the man, and the one specific deed that he did, which was bad. Us humans, we have a very, very hard time with that. We reduce a person to the negativity, and we wrap that person up into his negativity, and we say, you're one big Mr. Negativity because of the one negative thing that you did. That is so unfair. That is wrong. That is not how we should be behaving. Kairach is great. He has a name on the parsha. He is a good person. And by the way, if you read his autobiography, you'll see all the good things that he did. Happens to be the Torah didn't tell them. But we know they were there. He did plenty of good things. There's one thing that he did wrong. Once you understand that, it's totally okay for him to have his name of his parsha. Imagine we had that attitude to some of the people who we see doing kairach-like uh, activities. Wouldn't that change something? In fact, the Rebbe went further. Even that specific negative thing that he did, there's a way of framing it in a positive way. We can't get too far into it, but according to Kabbalah, Koirach had a proper claim that if it were the times of Mashiach, then he indeed should be the leader and not Moses. Again, we don't need to get into that. But the bottom line is, the one step is separating the person from the negative action. The second step is even looking at the negative action and saying, I can spin it in some sort of positive way, which is why he's deserving of having the name of the Parsha after him. What is the lesson the Rebbe did explain, did extrapolate? It's not just a Dvar Torah. He said, this means that we should have the same attitude for our fellow Jews. And then the Sicha concluded. And, as you know, after the Rebbe finished the talk, what happened? He starts singing a niggin. And so what niggin did? The people start singing. So uh, I've been singing the last few days. The horns of the wicked. Horns. In biblical parlance, a horn is the glory. It's a metaphor for the glory. So let the glory of the wicked be uprooted. Why did they sing this niggin? Well, because, I don't think it was that. The Rebbe just spoke about Kairach. So the Rebbe spoke about Kairach will sing a niggin about a wicked person. Well, the Rebbe was not satisfied. And as far as I know, this is one of the only times the Rebbe lifted his hand and paused the niggin. And he said as follows, I just spoke a lengthy sicha about how Kairach is a good person and how you have to separate the person from the deed. And even in the deed, there's a way to spin it positively. It's as if you're trying to just go undermine me by singing this particular niggin. Not okay. Instead, we should sing. All brothers, we're all in this together, all one. That's the niggin that should be sung. And when I saw this, it resonated so much with me because it's not a Dvar Torah. It's not a shuttle. You know, you open a safer and they say something cute. Yeah, like really, Bilam had a, yeah, 
it sounds nice and you eat your chalt and you go to sleep. No, it's real. It's real. It's so real. It's not just a theory. I wasn't just looking for a Dvar I was looking for something real. And if it's real, the nigin has to translate. It has to reflect what we're talking about. Rabbi Shemtov says a story that there was a boy on visiting day in Gan Yisrael, New York. He hears the boy telling his father, Tati, Moshiach is coming. Why are you saying Moshiach is coming? The Lubavitcher Rebbe was here yesterday. He visited the camp three times. The Lubavitcher Rebbe was here yesterday and he said Moshiach is coming. Son, I've been telling you for years Moshiach is coming. No, daddy, he really means it. He really means it. He really means it. When he says a vart on Kairach, he really means it. And he empowers us to mean it as well. And there's so much that we have at our fingertips in terms of what it says in the books and the the, all the good things that we have in a community where we're really able to tap into that and leverage it and use it in a positive way. And that brings me to another sicha of the Rebbe about another famous biblical villain, Dasan and Aviram. These guys, they're the lowest of the low at every turn. They are undermining Moshe Rabbeinu. Well, in the sicha of Noyach, Tavshim Memches, the Rebbe spoke about Dasan and Aviram. Maybe it's a little less well-known because it's not on the parshas of Dasan and Aviram. It's a Noyach sicha. The Rebbe pointed out something really interesting about them. Dasan and Aviram, you never have one without the other. The Torah never tells you about Dasan. He never tells you about Aviram. They're always together in lockstep. What does that tell you? These are people who excelled in relationships. Let's go further. Let's go further, he said. Let's go further. Who are the people, one of the things that they did was they complained to Moses that since you went to Pharaoh, it got a lot worse. The end of Parsha Shemais. We're going to read it soon. Who are the people who complained? Dasan and Aviram. According to Chazal, look at Rashi, you'll see, it turns out it's Dasan and Aviram. Okay, not cool that they were complaining to Moses and undermining him and yelling at him, but let's not forget what bothered them at that point in time. What were they upset about? The fact that the fellow Jews in Egypt were now have to work harder because it was a point in time when they were offered supplies and now they don't have the supplies and Dasan and Aviram, it bothered them that their fellow Jews had to work harder. You could just look at the story and say they were just looking every twist and turn to undermine Moshe. Okay, true, but you know something? In addition to that, it really bothered them that their fellow Jews had to work hard and that's why they were yelling at Moshe Rabbein. So what do you see? If you had to write a sketch on Dosan and Aviram, you would say that they were Bale Avas Yisrael, lovers of their fellow Jews. They care about their fellow Jews and they're always together. And that brings new light into the famous story of Moshe encountering them and says, Russia, Lama Sakariacha, evil person, wicked person, why are you hitting your fellow? Okay. We know the story, we understand the story. Here's the way the Rebbe reads the story. Russia, Lama Sakereyacha, you are blessed with the gift of excelling in interpersonal relationships. You are the paragon of greatness when it comes to relationships with other people. Look how good at you are. You're always together. You're fighting for your fellow Jews. What happened now that one of you is lifting your hand on the other? You're misusing that import traits that you have. How terrible. That's what makes you a Russia. Not the striking in and of itself, but the misuse of the great talent that you have. And here again, the Rebbe didn't just allow it to be a Dvar Torah, but say that the lesson that we need to take is we need to find ways of using and becoming better at our Avas Yisrael. And I want to say the following. I want to add the following. We have so many tools. 
We have what the Alter Rebbe told us in Tanya. We learn about Moach Shal Talev. There are a community of Jews who do not study these texts. They don't know about Moach Shal Talev. They don't know about the fact that the mind can control. They don't learn about Ashkach Pratis in the way that we do. They don't learn about the soul in the way that we do. We have all of that, like Dosan and Aviram. They had that great talent. We have those resources. We have those abilities. And when we fail to do that, I don't want to say those words that it says in the Torah, but the claim is geared toward us because we are able to do it. We have that ability. We have those tools. And so we need to step up and be better in this way. And finally, I recognize the fact that this is not an easy thing. And a lot of it has to do with personality. And I'll be honest, I don't know for myself how much of this is, is, is easy for me. I think a lot of it is not so, it's not so compatible with my personality. So, and I think the same would probably be the same for many in this room today. And so, I want to conclude with the following. There is a Pasuk in the end of Sefer Vayikra, a really difficult passage in the Torah, where it has all of the Toichacha, those verses of curses, of all the negative things that are going to happen if we fail to follow in God's ways. One of those verses, after it describes us going into exile, says, Nonetheless, when you are going to be in the lands of your enemies who've exiled you, nonetheless, God will not be disgusted by us. God will not reject the Jewish people to annihilate them. means to annihilate. God will not allow for them to be annihilated. Okay. That's some words of comfort, maybe cold comfort, but it's words of comfort that we get at the end of that uh, difficult passage in the Torah. The word can be spelled in two ways. The traditional way of spelling it would be lamid chaf, lamid vav, saf, mem, which would be lechaloi sam with that vav. However, when you open a Torah scroll, you'll notice that it's not spelled with the vav. It is spelled lamid chaf, lamid saf, mem, which means that if you read it, you can read it not lechalosam to annihilate them, lechalosam their bride. So now the word from annihilate turned into the word bride. What does bride have to do with anything? So there was the great Tanya Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai. He had a son named Rabbi Lazar. And Rabbi Lazar said in the Zayar, a beautiful mushal. You know, there's the part of town we always avoid. In the ancient world, it was the tanneries, where they would work on hides. You don't want to be there. It really stunk. Everyone did everything to avoid that part of town. Well, one day there is a man who falls in love with a woman whose apartment is in the market of the tannery. If she is not there, he said, He's not going there. He avoids it like the plague. But once she is there, he goes there. And not only he goes there, he feels like he's walking into a market full of spices when he goes to visit her with all of the wonderful smells that exist in the world. This is what Rabbi Lazar, the son of Reb Shimon, said. What does it have to do with the verse? Because there's something similar with God. Although God sent us into exile, although God is unhappy with us and somewhat rejected us, but at the end of the day, we remain his bride. And so therefore, even here, God is happy to come to visit us and to be with us. And it's not a tannery. It's great smells. And so therefore, he builds up the words of comfort. It's no longer you won't be annihilated. It's actually now God still loves you. Just like that man loves the woman. Okay. 
present at this speech. Again, it's recited by Rebbe Lazar Bar Shimon, the son of Rebbe Shimon Bar Yochai. Present at this speech was another great rabbi whose name was Rabbi Yoisi. And Rabbi Yoisi hears this and goes, wow, wow, unbelievable, what a vart, powerful, amazing, he is blown away. And then he goes on and quotes a verse from Malachi, which says, a child honors his parent and says, what an honor you've just brought to your father, Reb Shimon Bar Yochai, by you saying this beautiful, wonderful vart, you brought a tremendous kibbutz aim to your father, to Reb Shimon Bar Yochai. Okay. At a fabreng in, in Tafshin Mem, the Rebbe quoted this whole thing and said, why is Reb Yoisi getting... Why is Rabbi Yossi getting so giddy? Why is he getting so excited? He, throughout his life, he heard thousands and thousands of Torah concepts. And from this same man, he heard many other Torah concepts as well. And this is the only one where he's blown away. Wow, what an amazing idea. And this is the only one where he says, you brought glory to your father? What about the many, many pages and other lectures and speeches that he gave? Those didn't bring glory to his father. Dafke, this one, specifically this one brought glory to his father. Why is that? The Rebbe explained that if we look at the bio of Rabbi Lazarbe Reb Shimon versus his father, we'll understand. Rabbi Lazarbe Reb Shimon is famous for two very interesting stories in the Talmud. One, there's the cave story, where he, together with his father, are locked away in a cave for a number of years. When they finally come out, due to persecution, they had to be there. When they finally come out of the cave, Rabbi Lazarus of Shimon is so upset at seeing people work for a living. To him, you only pray, you only study, and God will take care of the rest. He expected spiritual excellence. He did not tolerate people. The regular way of life, he did not tolerate. He did not see any beauty, anything nice in someone who woke up in the morning, davened with a minion, and then went to work. He did not and see any, 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 anything valid in that. So much so that the Talmud says that he would use his eyes to destroy the scenes of, of such people, which presumably means that this was something he wanted eradicated from the world. He didn't want to see any of this. It's his father, Reb Shimon Bar Yechai, who said, calm down, son, calm down, son. Yes, there is a way of serving God and where you're completely dedicated and loyal, but this is another way. There is another way of doing that. Hold that story in your mind. Let's go to another story. This is the Gemara and Baba Metziah. says as follows. There was once a very there was once a time that Rabbi Lazar Bereb Shimon was essentially cooperating with the Roman police to find thieves in the Jewish community and to hand them over to be persecuted by the Roman authorities. Some of the fellow rabbis disagreed with him and thought this was a terrible idea because of the sentences that were being handed out at the time, which were ex extremely harsh. And they called him Choymetz Ben Yayin. You are vinegar of the son of wine. Your father was Rav Shem He was a somebody. You're a nobody. You're a lowlife. You're vinegar of the son of wine because look what you're doing. And he responded, I am tending to God's garden. I am cutting out the thorns from God's garden. These people are thorns and I'm getting rid of them. I am merrily eradicating thorns of Hashem's vineyard. What do we see from these two stories? If you had to write the profile for Rabbi Lazar Bereb Shimon, what type of person is he? Is he very forgiving? Is he one who sees value in every type of Jew and every type of Jewish life? Absolutely not. When he sees a Misa, an Avera, when he sees a negative action, he says, let's go in and crush that person. That's his attitude. When he sees someone who's not at the highest standing of spirituality, that person deserves to be erased. That's his attitude. That was his inborn attitude. And then what happened? 
What happened was, one day he said, you know something? I know I was born with certain traits and a certain uh, 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 personality. And I know certain attitudes that I have are more natural to me. And that's that. I'm not locked into that. I can transcend that. My father was more forgiving. My father was more loving. And it was that day that he said, even when the Jewish people are in Golos, even when they are in a terrible state, they are still God's bride. Who said this? Rabbi Elizabeth of Shimon said it. That's not natural to him. What happened here? Oh, he took his father's attitude, which was not natural to him, but he took it and he embraced it and he worked toward getting there. And he said, I am going to embrace that as my own. So Rabbi Yossi is sitting there and he goes, wow, what an amazing thing. I heard so much Torah from you. But all of that was just your wisdom. All of that was just your personality. You know what I heard now? I heard you transcend yourself. I heard you find this beautiful idea of love, of finding the value in every single Jew. And I know it doesn't come natural to know. I know you have to suspend yourself to get there. Ben Yechabedov, this is Kibudav, this is you putting yourself away and, and, and your viewpoints away to adopt of your father. This is the Emesik Kibudav. When you, when we grow out of our immaturity, when we move past of our vindictiveness and we, and we transcend that and we go to that better place that our father taught us, that's Ben Yechabedov. This is a summary of what the Rebbe spoke that. Bahar Bechukaisai, Tavshin Mem. And I think. This is so much here for us. We also have a father. The Rebbe is our father. The Rebbe laid out a roadmap for how we can think, how we can be kind to each other, how we can see the advantages and virtues in each other. It's all there. It's all in the books. But we struggle. We struggle because it's not natural to us. Just like Rebbe Lazar, the son of Reb Shimon, it wasn't natural to him. We find the thieves, we just want to crush them. We want to have nothing to do with them. They're negative people. We, have a, we reduce them to their negativity and then we just spit them out and, and we want to just move on. That's us. That's our natural state. Okay, we could continue like that. But Ben Yechabedov, we have the ability to put that aside and to tap into his teachings, to learn them, to unpack them, to translate what it means on a practical level, to have discussions about it, to say what's hard about this, what's easy about it, what's good about this, could we imagine getting better at this? And when we do that, if we are successful at getting better at that, Ben Yechabedov, that shows that we're linked to our Father. That shows that we're bringing glory to our Father. That is the best Nachas Ruach we could give Him, and it also leads to the best result for us down here today. And so, to conclude, I think it's worth taking a moment and to try to look inward and to say, where is an area in Bein Adam Bein Adam interpersonal, that I can be better? And to identify what that, would, what that is, step one. Step two is to then say, why is that difficult? Why is that challenging? Or another way of saying it is, why hasn't that happened till now? Because there are probably good reasons for why it's not happening. And if you ignore those, you're never going to grow. So the second step is to think about what those challenging aspects are. And then give yourself one piece of advice for how perhaps you can overcome that difficulty. Those three steps. An area of growth, what are the difficulties, and what's a piece of advice you can give yourself to overcome them. And when we do that, we are following in the footsteps of the Alter Rebbe, who felt the need to, listen, to be in that home of the opponent and to behave in a very dignified way. And then the way he wrote the Tanya, 
teasing out Avas Yisrael again and again and again. And as I said, what the Rebbe teaches us again and again, because there's a Sicha for every week with a positive spin. But if it remains as a Pshat, if it remains as a Dvar Torah, if it isn't translated into real life, we haven't yet achieved what we want to achieve. What we want to achieve is, despite our personalities, and besides the fact that it's not easy, we could, could transcend it, and indeed, ben yechabed of. Us as children could bring true glory to our Father. Thank you very much. This lecture was recorded live by Jewish Multimedia Library, otherwise known as JML, Melbourne, Australia. Many additional recordings are available from their website, www.jml.org.au.